This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no consensus on what crashed in the desert. This is Encounter 506, 1997. 1997. It was quite a year, certainly in the uh, flying saucer world. And I'm not just saying that because it's the year that David Jacobs came to speak at my college or anything. It's just that so much stuff happened. Also, of course, the year marked a half century since the dawn of the modern flying saucer age with Kenneth Arnold and all that back in 1947. And today, as we near the end of this run of episodes about the 1990s, we're going to examine three stories from 1997. Yeah, I know there were far more than three stories from that year, but we need to keep this to a reasonable length because it was a busy year. Part 1. The Phoenix Lights On March 13, 1997, there was a mass sighting of UFOs in the southwestern United States as well as in parts of northern Mexico. There were actually two different things seen in different places. A triangle-shaped group of lights sort of passed over the whole region and Then, additionally, there were some stationary lights that hovered over Phoenix itself. Several thousand people claimed to see one or both of the anomalous lights. According to witnesses, the triangle or V-shaped object was described as being roughly the size of a 747. A report to the National UFO Reporting Center described this sighting near Prescott, Arizona, which is about two hours north of Phoenix. While doing astrophotography, I observed five yellow-white lights in a V formation moving slowly from the northwest across the sky to the northeast, then turn almost due south and continue until out of sight. The point of the V was in the direction of movement. The first three lights were in a fairly tight V, while two of the lights were further back along the lines of the V's legs. During the northwest-northeast transit, one of the trailing lights moved up and joined the three, then dropped back to the trailing position. I estimated the three-light V to cover about 0.5 degrees of sky, and the whole group of five lights to cover about one degree of sky. What I like about this report is that there's a lot of detail here with regard to direction, location, size, distance, and things like that. And what's interesting is that there have been repeats of the lights, such as in 2007. Also interesting is that the Phoenix Light's place is not just in the context of UFOs in general, but in the more specific context of the emergence of the popularity of black triangle-shaped UFOs in the UFO world. Low-altitude flyovers of black triangular craft with lights on the lower surface became very popular in the mid to late 90s. Art Bell had his own black triangle sighting. It didn't start in Arizona, though. There had been a wave of these craft in Belgium in the late 1980s. But the Phoenix Lights sightings were one of the things that brought black triangles to greater prominence. There's also been, with this sighting, the phenomenon of well-known figures acknowledging the event. Arizona Governor Fife Symington claimed to have seen the lights. Of course, he didn't claim to see the lights until... 20 years later, in 2000, or 10 years later, rather, in 2007. In 2017, actor Kurt Russell acknowledged that he had seen the lights while flying a small plane in the area and had called in the sighting and reported it. It was, without a doubt, I think, the biggest UFO sighting story of the year. And if you Google 1997 UFO, if I remember right, nine of the first 10 Google results all relate to the Phoenix Lights. 
Part two, the Heaven's Gate suicides. So in late 1996, the Hale-Bopp comet was getting closer to Earth and a number of supposed remote viewers, chief among them Emory University political science professor Courtney Brown, he still works there, folks, claimed that there was a spacecraft or companion accompanying the comet. It was bigger than the entire planet Earth, and it was under intelligent control. This was all bolstered by the alleged presence of a photograph showing something behind the comet. Unless there wasn't a photo that showed that, there ended up not being. Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM show highlighted all of this uh, more perhaps, than any other radio show of the time. Uh, the Hellbop thing deserves its own episode down the road, and it's going to get one. For now, let's look at some of the fallout that hit the news in March of 1997. Over three days, March 24th, 25th, and 26th, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult, run by Marshall Applewhite, also known as Doe, killed themselves. Heaven's Gate, also worthy of its own episode down the road, had operated under a variety of names and had been around since the 1970s. Sort of a UFO cult, sort of a New Age religious group, led by Applewhite and a woman named Bonnie Nettles who had died in 1985. Applewhite and Nettles were known as Doe and T, or The Two. There was a TV movie about them, Jacques Vallée discussed them in Messengers of Deception. Um, they were not unknown. By the late 1990s, the group was supporting itself with web design work, and Applewhite was posting videos to the internet, which was a really new thing at the time, young people, about the group's translation to the level above human. They latched on to the Hellbop Comet as a signifier that the time for this transition was near. Now, the relationship with the group's fixation on Hellbop and the claims that there was a companion or spaceship accompanying the comet are unclear. On the front page of their website, which you can still visit at heavensgate.com, was this statement. Whether Hale Bob has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member in the evolutionary level above human, or the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that Hale Bob's approach is the marker we've been waiting for. The time for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to their world, in the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. Now, just to be clear, Hale-Bopp was discussed in paranormal venues before the companion sighting. Its importance, not just to Heaven's Gate, but to others who cared about such things, was not necessarily tied to the presence of literal spaceships. For example, there's one guy named Robert Morningsky, who in 1997 was on Art Bell's show and the Jeff Rents program and other shows talking about how the Hale-Bopp comet was the blue star Kachina and signaled the end of, I think he said, the fourth age as foretold in Hopi prophecy. So Hale-Bopp was not just something that was latched onto by Heaven's Gate. And it wasn't just the presence of a supposed companion under intelligent control that gave this comment significance to various people or groups. The motivations behind the group's move from publicly on their website opposing suicide to ultimately embracing it are unclear and still debated. 
Their press release, however, composed on March 22nd of 97, was designed to be released after the bodies were discovered. And uh, it's a little sort of nonspecific and cagey a little bit, but Applewhite, um, as the leader, must have known what was going to happen as it was being composed. By the time you receive this, we'll be gone. Several dozen of us. We came from the level above human in distant space, and we have now exited the bodies that we were wearing for our earthly task, to return to the world from whence we came. Task completed. The distant space we refer to is what your religious literature would call the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Periodically, the next level sends in a representative, a shepherd, and offers a graduation class, offers life out of this evolutionary level into that next evolutionary level, and we are at the end of one of those times. T and Do were the names used by the representatives of that next level, the kingdom of God, sent to the surface of this planet to serve as our teachers, midwives, at this time. During a brief window of time, some may wish to follow us. If they do, it will not be easy. The requirement is not only to believe who the representatives are, but to do as they and we did. You must leave everything of your humanness behind. This includes the ultimate sacrifice and demonstration of faith, that is, the shedding of your human body. If you should choose to do this, logistically it is preferred that you make the exit somewhere in the area of the west or southwest of the United States. But if this is not possible, it is not required. You must call on the name of T and Doe to assist you. In so doing, you will engage a communication of sorts, alerting a spacecraft to your location where you will be picked up after shedding your vehicle and taken to another world by members of the kingdom of heaven. Only a member of the next level can give you life, can take you out of death, but it requires that you disconnect, separate from the last element holding you to the human kingdom. We know what we're saying. We know it requires a leap of faith, but it's deliberate designed for those who would rather take that leap than stay in this world. We suggest that anyone serious about considering this go into their most quiet place and ask, scream with all their being, directing their asking to the highest source they can imagine beyond Earth's atmosphere to give them guidance. Only those chosen by that next kingdom will know that this is right for them and will be given the courage required to act. Members also recorded final statements to videotape. They're eerie. They'd be eerie if there'd been no suicides, but knowing that there were, yeah. They're all on YouTube, and I put a link to one of the compilations in the show notes. As the story of the suicides unfolded, Art Bell came under criticism for giving airtime to the debunked companion story. Bell defended himself by presenting his actions as those of an investigative journalist, that his show had in fact been the one that debunked the claims. No. Almost no one else saw it that way. UFO Magazine's Don Ecker, in a post on the UFO Updates mailing list dated April 10th, 1997, gave his opinion on Art Bell's culpability for what had happened. Bell, Streber, and others have taken some heat for the Heaven's Gate mass suicide. Anyone familiar with Bell and the story knows that Bell shoulders no blame for what these 39 adult believers did. But he should shoulder blame for being irresponsible with the information heard on his show for not treating such sensational material with a more critical eye. 
In closing, I have to mention this as embarrassing as it is. In April 1997, I wrote an opinion piece for my college newspaper in which I explained that it would be typical of my bad luck if the Heaven's Gate people were right all along and I had missed my chance to ascend to the level beyond human. Yes, I penned an article pretty much poking fun at a cult suicide. I don't think I have a copy of that paper anymore, and that's probably a good thing. Part 3. Roswell. Case closed. In 1995, at the request of Representative Stephen Schiff of New Mexico, the U.S. Air Force investigated all the existing records they could find on the 1947 crash of something in the desert near Roswell, New Mexico. The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, presented in its executive summary the Air Force explanation of what the Roswell crash wasn't. It wasn't an airplane crash. Of all the things documented and tracked within the Air Force, among the most detailed and scrupulous are airplane crashes. In fact, records of air crashes go back to the first years of military flight. Safety records and reports are available for all crashes that involved serious damage, injury, death, or a combination of these factors. These records also include incidents involving experimental or classified aircraft. U.S. Air Force records showed that between June 24, 1947 and July 28, 1947, there were five crashes in New Mexico alone. However, none of these occurred on the dates in question, nor in the areas in question. All right, not an airplane crash. Okay, good. It must have been a missile crash, right? Yeah. A missile crash. Air Force? Was it a missile crash? A crashed or errant missile, usually described as a captured German V-2 or one of its variants, is sometimes set forth as a possible explanation for the debris recovered near Roswell. Since much of this testing, done at nearby White Sands, was secret at the time, it would be logical to assume that the government would handle any missile mishap under tight security, particularly if the mishap occurred on private land. From the records reviewed by the Air Force, however, there was nothing located to suggest that this was the case. Wow, not a plane, not a missile. I hope it wasn't a nuclear accident. One of the areas considered was that whatever happened near Roswell may have involved nuclear weapons. This was a logical area of concern since the 509th Bomb Group was the only military unit in the world at that time that had access to nuclear weapons. Again, reviews of available records give no indication that this was the case. Also, any records of a nuclear-related incident would have been inherited by the Department of Energy, and had one occurred, it is likely DOE would have publicly reported it as part of its recent declassification and public release efforts. Okay, not a plane, not a nuke, not a missile, not any of those things, so it must have been an extraterrestrial craft. After all, Sherlock Holmes said... When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So, give it up, Air Force. It was a UFO flying saucer spacecraft from outer space, wasn't it? The Air Force research found absolutely no indication that what happened near Roswell in 1947 involved any type of extraterrestrial spacecraft. Oh. Okay. Um, so what was it? All available official materials, although they do not directly address Roswell per se, 
indicate that the most likely source of the wreckage recovered from the ranch was one of the Project Mogul balloon trains. Although that project was top secret at the time, there was also no specific indication found to indicate an official pre-planned cover story was in place to explain an event such as that which ultimately happened. It appears that the identification of the wreckage as being part of a weather balloon device, as reported in the newspapers at the time, was based on the fact that there was no physical difference in the radar targets and the neoprene balloons between mogul balloons and normal weather balloons. Oh, that clears everything up. It was a mogul balloon. What is a mogul balloon? Basically, very, very basically, Project Mogul involved attaching microphones to high-altitude balloons. Why would you do this? Well, the theory was, that the, the plan was, that these microphones would pick up sounds generated by Soviet atomic bomb tests, and we would be able to detect what the commies were up to. Project Mogul ran from 1947 to the earliest months of 1949 when we found better ways to detect Soviet nuclear activity such as seismic readings, air samples, things like that. So problem solved, right? Project Mogul ran during this time. The wreckage resembled the Mogul balloons. There was no cover story in place, so the cover story got confused between weather balloons and radar targets and, and initially a flying saucer crash. Problem solved. Great. Well, not great. Not settled. And there's a reason why this 1995 report is in our episode about 1997. Critiques of the 1995 report continued through 1995 and 1996 and into 1997 and spurred the Air Force into expanding their explanation of the incident and attempting to expand their analysis to address claims of bodies found at the crash site, for example, claims of witnesses that had come forward um, in the various books about Roswell that appeared during the 1990s. And the conclusions of this 1997 report, which was entitled Roswell Case Closed, were interesting and framed in a profoundly dismissive and, and really kind of snarky manner. When critically examined, the claims that the U.S. Army Air Forces recovered a flying saucer and alien crew in 1947 were found to be a compilation of many verifiable events. For the most part, the descriptions collected by UFO theorists were of actual operations and tests carried out by the U.S. Air Force in the 1950s. Despite the usual unsavory accusations by UFO proponents of cover-up, conspiracy, intimidation, etc., documented research revealed that many of the activities were actually historical scientific achievements of which the Air Force is very proud. However, other descriptions are believed to be distorted references to Air Force members who were killed or injured in the line of duty. The incomplete and inaccurate intermingling of these actual events were grounded in just enough fact to weave a sensational story, but cannot withstand close scrutiny when compared to official records. So, the Air Force explanation in 1997 was that, uh, that old people misremember things when talking about them decades after they happened. Which, I mean, yeah, that uh, that happens. Although the Air Force talked to the same people, gosh, it uh, it becomes a mess, and we'll deal with some of the uh, the critiques of this report in uh, in a bit. So basically, to take the 
the problem of, of supposed alien bodies that were found at the crash site. The bodies reported by witnesses, the Air Force claimed, were um, test dummies used in high-altitude uh, experiments or corpses of all-too-human Air Force personnel. The New York Times, in a June 25th, 1997 article about this report, summarizes it this way. The report, in voluminous detail, says the supposed mountain of evidence about aliens is just a mirage. Just as old sightings of squids and whales spawn tales of sea monsters, so too, the Air Force says, the shadowy doings of brave flyers, high-altitude balloons, lifelike crash dummies, and saucer-like craft in the southeastern New Mexico desert at the dawn of the space age were glimpsed and embellished over the decades into false evidence of aliens. The UFO community... In particular, those who focused their research and writing and public speaking on the Roswell incident, and to be cynical, made their living on their research, writing, and public speaking on the Roswell incident, were not impressed. In November 1997, Roswell researcher Stanton T. Friedman issued a press release with a challenge to the Air Force and the authors of the 1995 and 1997 reports in particular. Here's just a bit of this fairly lengthy and detailed press release. Frankly, I'm sick and tired of the U.S. Air Force lying to the public, the press, and members of Congress about UFOs, said nuclear physicist Stanton T. Friedman at a public lecture, Flying Saucers Are Real in Albuquerque. I have had a serious interest in UFOs for 39 years, lectured in a dozen countries, and visited 17 document archives. For 50 years, there's been a massive misrepresentation about UFOs in general, and in recent years, the Roswell incident in particular. The Air Force has come up with four different answers for Roswell. One, a flying saucer. Two, a radar detector and weather balloon. Three, a mogul balloon train over 500 feet long with 23 balloons and sauna boys. Fourth, and most recently, a mogul balloon train plus crash test dummies dropped at least six years after the 1947 crashes. I hereby challenge Colonel Richard Weaver, author of the outrageously misleading huge volume, The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, and Air Force Captain James McAndrew, author of the 1997 Roswell Report, Case Closed, to a formal debate. These two officers have made a mockery out of serious investigation. They have used all the tools of the propagandist with selective choice of data, false reasoning, false claims, positive and negative name-calling. These reports should be listed under fiction in the library. The mogul explanation doesn't fit. There are gross differences among the testimony of their witnesses, and they ignore the testimony they don't want to consider, while claiming falsely that they've talked to all the original witnesses, still alive, who handled material totally different from the mogul explanation. Doesn't the Air Force have a responsibility to those who pay the bills to be honest? Or are they above the law? I repeat my challenge. McAndrew and Weaver... Do you have the courage of your convictions? Name the date and place. Perhaps Larry King or Walter Cronkite or Ted Koppel would be willing to act as moderator. So what are we to make of all this? All three of these events were significant for the UFO field for the remainder of the 20th century and even beyond. Sightings of structured craft during the Phoenix Lights Wave reinforced the extraterrestrials, aliens, and spaceships approach to the phenomenon but at the same time bolstered discussion of classified military aircraft being mistaken for otherworldly technology. The suicide of the Heaven's Gate group brought to the fore questions of, and I can't believe this is a real thing I'm saying, journalistic integrity within the context of late-night paranormal radio shows. 
Art Bell came under a great deal of criticism at the time, mostly, this has to be said, from competitors in the paranormal radio field. When Art Bell died earlier this year, it was one of the issues that many commentators raised. Um, I know I did when I talked about it. The Roswell incident received an infusion of new life because of the Air Force report, not because of its convincing nature, but because it was open season on the government cover-up for those who had their own interpretations of the evidence or critiques of the Air Force report. The publicity surrounding the 50th anniversary, combined with the fact that there were witnesses still alive at the time, meant that Roswell was in the public consciousness in a way that few UFO stories had been in recent decades. The timing of the incident, summer of 1947, meant that in the minds of many, it was the Roswell crash that launched the flying saucer age, eclipsing Kenneth Arnold's sightings in the popular imagination. Now, I can't quantify this, or even explain it very well, but things changed in the UFO field after 1997. Art Bell, a resounding symbol of 90s weirdness, would, by the end of the decade, have begun his cycle of retirement followed by triumphant return. The so-called disclosure and exopolitics movements increasingly came to dominate the UFO field. That pretty terrible X-Files movie came out, and the show began to increasingly, in my opinion, go off the rails. The explosion of internet access exponentially skewed the signal-to-noise ratio in the wrong direction. Things were different, but not necessarily better. 1997 with its explosion of new sightings and ideas combined with a firm grounding in a comfortable past, seems kind of like a saucer midlife crisis, taking solace in familiar patterns, but with a compulsion for finding something new. In our next encounter, we wrap up our 90s flashback with a look at the proliferation of underground-based stories, tales, legends, and lore during the 1990s. In the meantime, you can explore the archives at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated, and we thank those of you who've done so. The Saucer Life Encounter 506 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.